Hi, Zach. Hi, Rachel. This is nice. I'm not usually the one behind the mic on these episodes. I know. Well, that's because this is a different kind of episode. I mean, we're telling a a different kind of story today, and it's one I'm a little nervous about. Don't be nervous. It's okay. (laughs) We're in a safe space here, and I'm excited to be here for this one-off. Well, you mentioned a one-off, and that might be where we already break form. But I wanted to start this episode by addressing this difference because this story feels like an important story to tell, especially right now. I mean, there's a lot of elements at play here, and at points it may seem like we're lost in thought, but let me reassure you, I mean, this story is focused around crypto. Well, that's a hot button topic to start with. And it also involves sustainability. We're talking double whammy here, Rachel. We're talking (laughs) double whammy. Also, there's an effort to bring life back to a community in decline. Okay. I'm starting to see why this is a complex story. Right. I mean, so I want to say to you and to our listeners, I mean, hang in there. The people who I met and the places I went to to find this story are some of the best examples I've seen of entrepreneurs working in the tech space, building a successful business while having a tangible positive impact on their community, their environment, and their local economy. I mean, this is a story which I think we can really learn from and be inspired by, and it is about crypto. I just want to emphasize that. Okay, okay. It's about crypto. I trust you. (laughs) But this sounds exciting. I mean, in the world we're living in today, I'm ready to be inspired by a crypto story. So where do we begin? The best place to begin is crypto and the environment. Well, it's a highly debated topic, largely due to the electricity consumption of crypto mining. One thing I actually do know is that the global electricity usage for crypto assets exceeds the total annual electricity usage of many individual countries. And we're not necessarily talking tiny ones. We're talking Argentina, Australia. So you've been reading the OSTP report on climate and energy, too. I mean, you know me. I like to keep up on all the reports coming out of Washington, Rachel. You know this. <laughs> but on a on a serious note, it is a real issue which has largely gone unsolved within the fintech space. Tech industries and the communities around them like to think of themselves as forward-looking and clean, but we are seeing the real-world impact of mass adoption of some of those technologies, and people have questions. Right. And this is the hook. This is what is going to keep you locked in over the next 40 minutes or so. This group of people have devised a solution for this, a way to mine crypto whilst remaining a net positive to the electrical grid. And you're going to reveal how they did that in this episode for free? Yes, in the spirit of inspiration and philanthropy. All right, fine. You're a good person. Where does it start? (laughs) Well, this starts in the northeast of the United States. Now, starting at the northern border of Pennsylvania and stretching all the way down to the western border of Alabama is the Appalachian Coal Basin. And as you can imagine, this stretch of land is a huge coal seam 
which has been fueling the modernization of America as far back as 1761, when the first recorded Pennsylvania coal mine was created. That seems like a long time ago, but it's the element that ties this whole thing together. So let's have a little bit of a talk about the years following the end of the Civil War in 1865. The mining of coal really ramped up as the major cities in the Northeast, like Pittsburgh, Philadelphia, and of course, New York City, began to build bigger and more vertical buildings, and more energy was required to create the steel in order to support those structures. So more steel factories means more need for energy. And one entrepreneur who recognized that need was... Carnegie, right? Andrew Carnegie. Carnegie built his first steel factory in 1872 in the town of Braddock on the outskirts of Pittsburgh in western Pennsylvania. By 1892, Mr. Carnegie founded the Carnegie Steel Company, and just nine years later, he sold that in a deal to J.P. Morgan, which was hailed as one of the largest business transactions in the early 20th century. And when adjusted for inflation, it was worth over $17.3 billion dollars. Raising $17 billion in just nine years is not bad. I'm pretty, pretty sure we can say that was the first ever unicorn. <laughs> and, I mean, one of the faster ones, too. I mean, catch up, Brex. And that was actual money, too. Carnegie sold the company and was fully out and able to build his theaters and hospitals and universities and libraries and, you know, of course, Grand Central Station. We don't get that kind of architecture from our business leaders these days. We just get those little blue birds. So Carnegie built a lot of buildings, a lot of infrastructure. However, we kind of know what comes next, right? After all this growth and development, it feels inevitable that it is followed by decline. And as demand for new buildings shrunk and demand for energy waned, a lot of those towns and cities whose whole ecosystem revolved around the mine and the power plant were simply left behind. But not only that, the environmental impact of these industrial processes left a permanent scar on both the landscape and the lives of the people who remained. And when the reason your town was developed just vanishes... I mean, what are you left with? The story we're going to tell you over the course of the next two episodes is about one of those towns, actually a township, which is coincidentally less than 50 miles as the crow flies from Braddock, the location of Carnegie's first steel factory. And this is the township of Scrubgrass. So in the spirit of this story, I went a little rogue and I hopped on a flight to visit Scrubgrass and I spent some time with a group of people who are attempting to bring back life to this area, literally. And it all centers around one man. His name is Bill Spence. Hi, guys. Hi. Everybody. Hi, Jeff. So Bill grew up right there in Scrubgrass. His father worked at the coal mine, and Bill's story follows the story of so many young people trying to get out of their dead-end town, 
by joining the military. Getting out of scrub grass by joining the forces? I swear that's a Bruce Springsteen lyric. It feels exactly like it was ripped straight out of a Springsteen song. And the rest of Bill's story might deviate from the boss's usual staple. I mean, after he was done with the military, he made his money and a good amount of money in lots of different businesses, largely in the energy sector, both working his way around established companies and as a serial entrepreneur. Now, if I were to describe Bill, I mean, I don't think he would be offended if I said, is that an aging half rock star, half hippie? And what struck me the most about Bill was how open he was with his story and really the driving force behind this whole purpose, his dad. Bill grew up in Scrubgrass, and that was because Bill's father was working in the mines there. And years later, Bill lost his father to kidney cancer which Bill directly links to the mines leaking toxic components into the ecosystem and the water supply. I will never understand how we're comfortable letting our water supply get to that state. Well, clearly neither could Bill. So as I mentioned earlier, after his military service, Bill started to work in the energy sector and did well in that. But an opportunity presented itself to him that he would find irresistible. They did what they call government-financed no-cost contracts with the state of Pennsylvania, the environmental group, and we would be under contract to remove all acid-bearing material and then convert that, that material into electricity and then take the resultant alkaline ash back to the site, which was an acidic environment, neutralize it, revegetate it, do the reclamation, and solve the water problems that, that were coming from leaching and, and, you know, surface water. These plants cost, you know, 250 to $500 million to build. So it's a significant capital investment. And because of the environmental aspect of what they do and the specific needs for our region, they enhanced the uh, sort of motivation by providing power purchase agreements to the people who... So... If I'm understanding that right, the state of Pennsylvania offers a tax incentive for individuals to establish small power plants, which are able to take the toxic waste which exists on the surface of the land and reprocess it to reproduce power and plug it back into the grid? Yep, that's it. So Bill had the opportunity to go back to his hometown clean up the waste that killed his father and build a functioning power plant that would provide jobs to some of the people who may have still been recovering from the decline in the coal mining industry. That's, I mean, that's not only a win-win, that's a no-brainer, it's easy money, it's a cakewalk, it's full circle, that's everything that is that is spherical. Oh, well, okay, hold, hold on there. You just saved me a couple of pages of me explaining why this was such a good idea. Oh, sorry. I got excited. So Bill wasn't going to do this alone. When he saw this opportunity, he began forming a team of experts to drive this idea forwards. And this was the very same group who I met when I arrived at the plant. And first on board was his assistant, Julie. 
Julie's my longest female relationship of my life. How long have I been ruining your life for? Like 30 years or so, would you say? Can you believe that? Bill knows that she can pretty much handle anything he throws at her. Next on board, Bill needed someone who really understood the nuts and bolts of how the process of converting the toxic waste into energy would work. That is R.J. Schaefer. R.J. Schaefer, Vice President of Asset Management for Stronghold. He took me through what the process is to repurpose the refuse and reclaim all this land that is occupied by the waste. It was a problem in the state of Pennsylvania, and the only way to solve the problem was to completely eliminate the source of the acid mine drainage. So what we do is we remove that acidic material, we convert it to Tier 2 alternative energy here at Scrubgrass, and then the result material is an alkaline ash. How it becomes alkaline is we have to pulverize and process high calcium limestone. So that high calcium limestone, a lot of that comes back into the ash, which makes it highly alkaline. You take that alkaline material, put it back into an acidic environment, and it neutralizes everything at those sites and allows things to be able to, to grow again. So the final piece of this puzzle is Jeff Campbell who is the engineer of the plant. Everything he does is about taking the energy from the refuse and pumping it into the grid. Jeff is a, a brains of the outfit. Would you agree with that? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> and the name they decided to call the facility was Stronghold. All right. So from everything I've heard, this small team of people are able to access a state tax subsidy in order to go into a small town, clean it up, create new jobs, and make money from powering the grid. Rachel, you have to tell me that there was something difficult about this. Otherwise, this is awkward on a podcast that we both kind of do for a living. But I might have to quit my job and start some of these myself because this sounds too good to be true. What's what's the catch? Well, I mean, as with everything, it's not quite as simple as it sounds. I mean, you have to think about the whole ecosystem here. If the grid is suddenly flooded with small additional power plants... What, the price of energy will crumble? Well, yeah. But also, there will be a lot of unused energy being produced. And despite what a certain electric car pioneer slash recent social media acquirer may have promised in terms of a giant battery storage solution in the desert, there is no way to store that energy for a rainy day. So the only time these additional power plants operate is when there is high demand, like during the Super Bowl? Or a rainy day, literally. One of the biggest additional strains on the grid is when there are extreme weather conditions. That makes sense, I guess. Okay, so the prime example then would be, I mean, recently, Texas, right? I remember the widespread devastation that happened there after the winter storms of 2021. The state's electricity grid operator lost control of the power supply, left millions without electricity. I think they said they were, what, minutes away from the whole grid just crumbling. Yeah. And the blackouts lasted for days in some areas. So these kind of small power plants could be considered, I guess, as a safety net as well as an environmental cleanup opportunity operation? Yeah. But, uh, I mean, there's another issue at play here. 
okay, this is good. Another issue is good. You're giving me another reason not to quit my job and start a state-subsidized power plant. I need more of those. Okay. Well, actually, Jeff gave me this reason. So PJM is the primary customer. They have got first right of refusal on, on the power. Every day we tell PJM what it will cost us to put power on the grid. And they look at all the other power plants in the grid and they say, we've actually got enough other units that are supplying power. We don't need the power from you. On days like that, you'd say, well, just turn your power plant off because you're, you're more expensive than what people are willing to pay. The problem is you can't turn this on and off. Turning a power plant on and off is like vending a paperclip. You do it 10 times and the paperclip breaks. So the power plants across the country have a lot of pressure to, to find out ways to make power less and less costly. And one way to do that is don't maintain your equipment. Power plant sort of is a lot like a car. And what you're supposed to do is keep doing the repairs needed to keep it in good shape. And then you can do that for 50 years. But if you treat it like a car and you don't overhaul an engine or you don't, you know, do keep up with rust mitigation, things like that, after about 20 years, it's not going to run real well. And, you know, a lot of power plants are 20, 30 years old. If people didn't continue to put the maintenance in because the consumers did not want to pay for expensive power, they got what they asked for. They got cheap power that is not as reliable as they thought they wanted. Basically... Power plants don't run well when you leave them non-operational for extended periods of time. It's very difficult to just switch on a power plant when your local meteorologist publishes a severe weather warning. Honestly, that sounds like my last car. And you can't just leave them running the whole time because the grid will become oversupplied, right? Right. What this means is these plants run with extremely small margins and are only really feasible with the subsidy. Okay, it's a small margin, but it's working, right? They're cleaning up the toxic waste, people are employed. What happens next? So let's get back to the chronology here. Yes, things are working like you say. The plant was operational by 2016, and by all measures, it was doing what it was intended to do. It was a lot of work for everyone involved, and it required the strong hand of Bill guiding the ship. However, in 2019, Bill became ill. After tests, he was diagnosed with cancer in his kidney. It was the same kind of cancer that killed his father. The same kind of cancer, which he knows was caused by the toxins leaking into the water supply. Through 2019 and into 2020, Bill was really sick. But throughout it all, he remained leading this team. That's a lot and also very full circle. But now I've got other alarm bells ringing because you just mentioned the year 2020, a year where a huge portion of our population was isolating at home. Our demand for energy dropped dramatically as a result. Those are some damn discerning bells there, Zach. Economic life as we know it stopped. No restaurants were open. Schools were shuttered. Offices were closed. And when everything came to a halt, suddenly places like Scrubgrass were back where they started. There was no need for these small supplemental power stations when there was such low demand for energy. 
just like when there was low demand for steel in the days of Carnegie. Yeah, so when I talked to the grid operators, they said the pandemic was looking a lot like a snow day where nobody goes to work, power demand's down, and they saw that for almost two years. Think about it. I mean, you have major office buildings that all of a sudden didn't have electricity. Schools weren't in session. You know, restaurants were all shut down. Everything was gone. So here we are basically in this boat trying to row back from the waterfall to not go over it. So I know this story doesn't end here. I mean, we have a whole second episode to go, so there has to be something else that happens. But when you have one single customer, the grid, and then that customer doesn't need your services anymore and your leader is suffering from a life-threatening illness and the whole country's way of operating is shut down overnight, <sighs> things aren't, uh, aren't looking that positive right now, I have to say, Rach. No. And I'm sure Bill and his team would agree with you. And they knew something had to be done. They certainly weren't going to abandon the township like so many had done before. And so they all met up in Bill's kitchen while Bill was still very sick. Short answer, Bill's kitchen. <laughs> I mean, we, we came up, Bill had the idea that we had it in his kitchen. We could either sit here and not run or we could, we could come up with an idea to allow us to be able to continue these reclamation projects and, and keep the plant running. It basically gave us a second customer. So instead of just selling to PJM or, or supplying grid power, now we have a second customer. So they knew that if they lost their one customer, they were going to have to find a new one. But it's not like they could find another grid to plug into. Firstly, I don't think that's how they operate. And second, the whole country is going through the same thing. Demand was low everywhere, right? Okay. So, well, if there are no customers out there, you create one. Oh, I think I might have just made a connection. If you can't use the energy you're creating to power the grid, you need to use it to power something else which will generate revenue, pay everybody's bills, and allow you to continue cleaning the environment, at least hopefully. And that thing which will generate revenue is... Okay, okay, I'm not going to let you ruin my cliffhanger here. This is where we're going to leave it for this episode. And in the next, I'm going to share exactly what happened and how they did what I promised from the start how they built a successful business while having a tangible positive impact on their community, their environment, and the local economy. Damn, you know how to string me along. I promise you it will pay off in the end. I believe you. I'll wait till next week. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you for listening to this episode. Part two will be coming out next week, so please keep your eyes open for that. This is a story that's really worth finishing. for listening to this episode of The Money Pot. If you like what you've heard, please do get in touch. You can email us at podcast at money2020.com. Episode two of this two-part story will be coming out next week, so keep your eyes peeled for that. And please do like and subscribe to the show. Thanks so much for listening.